Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. World War I saw a dramatic evolution in the technical collection of intelligence. From the start, signals intelligence, the interception of communication signals, played a major role in the war. At the 1914 Battle of Tannenberg, the Russian army broadcast their daily orders in the clear over the radio. The Germans intercepted these messages and used them to win a decisive victory. As the war went on, it was clear that secure communications could mean the difference between victory or defeat. And this led to the rise of code interceptors, code makers, and code breakers. When the U.S. Army arrived on the battlefields of France, it had to quickly find ways to encrypt its communications. One solution was to use Native American languages to transmit information. Today, many people are familiar with the Navajo code talkers of World War II, but few know that Native Americans served as code talkers in World War I as well. To discuss the World War I code talkers, we are joined today by Dr. William C. Meadows, professor of sociology and anthropology at Missouri State University and author of The First Code Talkers, Native American Communicators in World War I. Welcome, Dr. Meadows, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me today. So before we get into the code talkers in World War I, could you give us an overview of how Native Americans were perceived and utilized by the U.S. military in the decades leading up to World War I? Okay. Um, yeah, there's several, several factors here. Natives have served in all the American conflicts going all the war, the War of 1812, Civil War, etc. There would be three main areas uh, that you would see Native American participation in. One is in the scouting program. And so during the, the Plains Wars, particularly post-Civil War, so 1865 to 1890, so there's a scouting program that goes on there for quite a while by many American forces, particularly the U.S. Cavalry. And um, at first it was fairly informally done, and then later on it became a, a more formal, organized, uh, with troops uh, especially recruited, uniformed, and used with the cavalry. Following that, uh, the Spanish-American War, there's uh, quite a few Native Americans that participate in that. Quite a few in uh, Theodore Roosevelt's uh, first volunteers, uh, what we know today as the Rough Riders. And he recruited those units out of Oklahoma, New Mexico, Texas, some of the Western areas. And so that drew quite a few Native American participants in it. Uh, again, primarily as cavalry. And then uh, prior to World War I, the National Guard, there were quite a few Native Americans in areas that had high Native population concentrations that were serving in the National Guard at that time. Some of them all the way back into like 1910 and so had been in it quite a few years. And one of the factors there was a source of income. It was one of the few sources of income, both for Indians and non-Indians in some areas. And so there's quite a few members that participated in that for the training, but also as a source of monthly income. In the book, you point out that more than 25% of the eligible adult male Native American population served in the war. Can you walk us through how Native Americans responded to America entering World War I? 
and then how they entered military service and how at this point does the military intend to use them? Overall, the outturn was very enthusiastic and patriotic. There were quite a few people that began to voluntarily enlist as soon as war was declared. It's a lot of gray area at this time, confusion on both the non-Indian side and the native side about which natives are actually U.S. citizens and which ones are not. Um, the best estimates are that at the time uh, when we declare uh, war, roughly two-thirds of natives were U.S. citizens and one-third uh, were not citizens. A lot of time it came down to one factor was had your reservation went through the process of allotment, where it was, it was surveyed, individual parcels were chosen or assigned to individual natives, and then the remainder of the reservation was opened up for land rushes and, and sold off to the public. So if you went through allotment, you were a, a U.S. citizen. And I worked with elders that were old enough that, uh, yeah, they, they told me about voting before World War I. They were U.S. citizens. Um, there are some groups that did not go through allotment, so they were not U.S. citizens. And uh, there's also different ways according to certain treaties or provisions because they're not all the same. They're very different from treaty to treaty, group to group, um, special circumstances about were you legally a U.S. citizen by that time. But the short answer is about two-thirds were and one-third were not. So you have both natives who are U.S. citizens volunteering and being accepted. You also have natives that are not U.S. citizens who are volunteering and enlisting. And then you, when the draft comes along, you have both natives that are U.S. citizens being drafted, but you also have some non-citizens who are being drafted. And that's going to create a situation after the war that will lead to the Indian Citizenship Act and everything. A lot of people saw it as, uh, and, and there's, there's, many factors, about 10 primary factors of why people enlisted so enthusiastically overall. There are some cultures, not all, but there are some cultures where the role of a, quote, warrior or serviceman was paramount to a man's social status, um, rank, etc. Income, because again, they uh, it was a reliable source of income for a period. Some describe joining for the opportunity to travel, to see other places, a little bit of adventure. Some people described as a means to escape the kind of dire situations of some of the reservations. This is one of the bleakest periods of, of uh, uh, really poor management of reservation areas, and people are uh, living in a lot of fairly substandard conditions and things like that. So depending on which veterans, you know, their exit interview you look at, and there were a lot of these collected, people joined for a whole variety of factors and things of that nature. And they also saw it, um, some groups, for example, had treaties uh, still with England or with the United States. And in those treaties, it actually says that um, should the United States be attacked or England be attacked, they will come to their aid. And so some tribes looked at it as this is honoring their word, you know, that they had given in earlier treaties um, and, and doing that. And the same applies to Canada. You had a lot of Canadian Indians serving uh, even prior to the American Indians uh, getting uh, involved in everything. And we had some American Indians who actually crossed the border into Canada and enlisted in the Canadian armed forces because they entered the war earlier. 
So there was overall, there are some people that uh, did have issues with uh, being drafted that were not citizens and tested those cases, and they and they should have been questioned, you know. But overall, there was widespread support among the enlistees, but also the communities and everything. So um, how did the military intend to use them and everything? So for the most part, there was a question that came up, should we induct natives in all Indian units as, as having all Indian or unique units? And there were both natives that requested that. There are also some American military commanders and politicians that requested that. That was not approved. However, and the reason behind that is the idea is to mix them in amongst other American soldiers of, of different backgrounds and let them, you know, commingle and, and absorb that culture. But in some areas like Oklahoma, in Montana, um, in, in parts of the West where you had very large percentages of native population in that local area, you did end up with some units sometimes that were primarily native. And so, for example, the 36th Division, which is where the Choctaw Code Talkers will come into play later, the southeast corner of uh, Oklahoma uh, was predominantly native. So you do have some companies. One company was completely uh, native with the exception of a few officers when it started. And there are other companies that had very high percentages. Uh, the same way with Western Oklahoma that ended up in the 90th uh, division. Uh, so you did have pockets like that uh, that worked, but officially the program was not designed to have all ethnic units of any type. And from the start, their implementation was just going to be as regular soldiers. So they went through the same kind of basic training, uh, nothing unusual in that circumstance. However, um, once they uh, deployed to France and got over uh, near the combat, there was a lot of them that were being used uh, in particular uh, situations, particularly as scouts. And so to do reconnaissance of head of groups, to do uh, patrols and probes at night, things of that nature. And there comes to be what Tom Holm, Native scholar Tom Holm labeled uh, years back the Native Scout Syndrome or the Indian Scout Syndrome. And this was the belief, the non-Indian belief that Natives are inherently born with natural martial capabilities. And so, uh, in a sense, um, they can see better at night than non-Indians. They can move more quieter through terrain than non-Indians. Uh, they have a sixth sense of, of perception and things of that nature. And as veterans will tell you, there's, you know, that's not always true in the case. Uh, sometimes you have people from rural backgrounds who simply are used to those kind of conditions and are more attuned to them. And you have people from urban backgrounds that are not sometimes. But the seriousness of this is that that tended to put a lot of natives in more forward positions, more contact positions, which mean they drew combat, they come under fire more often. And so there is a higher uh, ratio of natives being wounded and killed than the non-Indian population of the American forces. So that stereotype or set of beliefs has repercussions in what they suffered. Uh, to add to that, there's this expectation a lot of times, but you also see a pattern where a lot of Natives are willing to volunteer for those positions, which uh, in hindsight only feeds to the stereotype or only you know makes it grow and everything of that nature. 
but there's many cases of uh, both Indians and non-Indians performing very, very well, you know, in the service and everything. But that's a that's a long-held set of uh, of kind of stereotypes or beliefs. And that brings me to my next question. We've talked about these stereotypes and the American press was a big part of that. And they were absolutely fascinated with the idea of Native American troops on these World War I battlefields. And in their stories about what's happening overseas, they perpetuate a very complex mythology of that Native American as kind of the noble savage with these superhuman senses and with this incredible strength and but no leadership ability. Now, on average, and I think you've touched on this a little bit, how did the combat experience of Native Americans compare to other U.S. troops? Um, overall, it would be very similar in that they were in the same kind of conditions, campaigns, <clears throat> side by side with non-Indian troops and everything. Um, sometimes, though, like I said, they would be asked or sometimes assigned reconnaissance missions, scouting missions at night, probes, things of that nature. And that, of course, put them in some, you know, precarious, more frequently opportunity to draw combat situations and everything. Um, if you read through some of the, um, the accounts from World War One. And also, there was a very large project that interviewed a, a lot of Native American veterans coming home from the war, and a lot of them recorded their experiences and, and, and things. But from I remember this one group, for example, they were going to go out on a patrol, and uh, they didn't want to go out on the patrol unless this one particular Native was their point guy to lead them, because they, they felt that he could more accurately lead them, protect them, etc. So again, these these ideas were there. Uh, one of the things that we find that's a little different here is that the military commanders in World War One, over and over again, many, many accounts, but they report about how the Native soldiers just simply whatever they're asked to do, they take it up and do it. They don't argue about it. They don't try to get out of it. Um, they're very willing you know, to serve. In other words, they don't complain a lot. And that was something that the officers really appreciated was you could give them any task and they would do their absolute best um, and you know, usually achieve it and everything of that nature. And so that willingness is something that the officers um, stuck out very quickly. Even in training, they're mentioning that, that they make excellent, uh, excellent soldiers and things of that nature. There are a few that do become officers. Most of the ones that became officers had been to uh, usually boarding schools, you know, had a fair amount of education, et cetera, and everything. But I do know of some cases of like some lieutenants uh, that were Native American in World War One. But yes, you are correct. Generally, uh, most of them did not advance that far in rank. There are some, a lot of privates, corporals, a few sergeants and things of that nature, but most of them were kept in the uh, um, in the non-commissioned or just regular enlisted uh, positions. So we've talked a little bit about how the American press in general and how many Americans viewed the Native Americans, but how did the Germans view the Native Americans that they faced on the battlefield? Yeah, this is an interesting topic. Um, there's a little bit of effort early in the war that Germany 
Germany tries a little bit of propaganda. They think that they can sway Native Americans to uh, not support the American troops or to come over to their side. But once they're over there, there's some there's some hints and things that they are pretty much worried about uh, Native Americans. And again, a lot of it goes into the to the stereotypes of the late 1800s and earlier. But before World War One, Wild West shows, of course, had spread to Europe, and so they were touring England, France, Germany, different areas over there. And of course, Wild West shows were very dramatic and and mostly focused on you know quote unquote the uh, the free days and and a lot of reenactments. Of combat and wagon trains being circled, and you know, uh, very, uh, very dynamic stage performance kind of things uh, in native dress and everything. And so, there is some uh, trepidation there where a lot of Germans are nervous and worried about facing Native Americans and things of that nature. Uh, a couple cases where uh, captured officers inquire, you know, is your group. You know, do you have Indians in your group or Native Americans, et cetera, and everything like that? So a lot of this comes out of that Wild West experience. And then Carl May. Carl May was a very widespread, he's kind of the German Zane Gray, if you will, or Louis L'Amour, wrote tons of kind of Western uh, novels that had Natives portrayed a lot in them. And so this, of course, you know, it's it's entertaining, you know, fiction, <clears throat> but it, it plays to the Germans. Um, stereotypes about what natives are really like and what they would do. And, and of course, there were uh, fears that certain things would be done in combat to them and everything of that nature. So there is some trepidation there. There's no question uh, about it, you know. And one of the things that's recorded is um, um, some native groups and some of the actual veterans reported this, but when they would cross a line or in, in the attacks, they would give war hoops and things of that nature. It really scared the Germans. It's something that uh, Europeans will yell and holler, but the uh, kind of the war hoop or the war cry and everything was something that was not in their familiarity and it really intimidated them. That's really interesting. So where does the practice of using the Native Americans as code talkers come from? And do we know when that starts? It's incidental in a sense. In other words, it's just something that was stumbled upon. There was no plan. There was no uh, existence of it in the U.S. military prior to the war. But as the war went on, as we mentioned earlier, it was clear that the Germans were um, Germans had fantastic scholars. I mean, still do, you know, of course. And, and they knew practically every major language in the world at this time. They had linguists and everything, um, but they weren't familiar with Native American languages. So there's a couple separate incidences that we do have recorded where American officers are talking to one another over the phone. And there's one where uh, I think it's a couple colonels or something of that level, but one's asking the other, how's their situation? And he said, oh, we're fine. We've been, we're being shelled all morning. But they said, you know, the Germans, they're, they're 100 meters off. They're hitting behind us 100 yards or meters, whichever, and all morning, and they haven't scratched us. Well, within just a couple of minutes, that artillery was adjusted and it was landing right on that colonel's uh, position. And so they realized very quickly, they're, they're hearing everything that we're saying. So they staged a fake message that was handed off in person first and then sent over the radio that um, a couple companies of men, certain artillery and supplies would all be positioned on this specific hill location at, at 12 o'clock or so. And they just waited and watched. And at like 12.02 or 3, uh, the Germans just 
eradicated that hill with everything that they had. So they knew, again, this was kind of a check. Yes, they could hear all our messages and everything. Um, There's a couple other of those kind of cases where people catch on to it. So in the 30th Division up near uh, Katini, they pull the officers together. And this is the, the 30th is out of North and South Carolina. And so they pull their officers together and they say, you know, we got to we got to think of something to counter this. They can hear every word we're saying and and uh, and and break it and everything. One of the officers said, well, you know, I was in the the first North Carolina National Guard. We had a, a ton of Cherokees enrolled in the National Guard prior to the war. And I'm sure that they're here in the division. They're just we just got to find them, you know. And so they called out a number of uh, Cherokees and begin to use them on the radio. Uh, and that solved the problem. The Germans could hear it. They could talk in the open, and uh, but they had no idea what was being spoken, what the language was, or the content of it. And that's kind of the situation in other places. Um, the Germans, there there's several different methods at this time. So one, you have a telephone and you have lines stretched from company to company and then back to your battalion, your regiment, your division. Well, anywhere that a German can get up to that wire and clip onto it, it just becomes a party line, like like an old telephone system. You just pick up and listen. And we could do the same thing to them. Um, They had listening devices. So these are positioned, a machine that's positioned and aimed at a line, but they could be anywhere two to four kilometers away from the front line. But magnetically, they could pull in the current of messages and overhear them that way. So they didn't even have to be close to the fire. And then, of course, anything that we coded, whether it be, uh, you know, written, semaphore, uh, anything like that, they could break eventually because they knew English. So this this is how the idea came about. We do know, uh, see, I believe we have, yeah, we have three groups that we know the exact dates that they started. And so for a long time, myself included, Everyone believed that the Choctaws were the first code talkers and everything, but people simply hadn't really checked the records. And so the first group we know of is in the third division, there are some Ho-Chunk from Wisconsin. So most people would know them as Winnebago in the the popular name, but Ho-Chunk. And uh, two of them are, are uh, they're actually brothers-in-law who enlisted together. They are put on the radio and they are used to send messages at uh, like Chateau Thierry and some of those battles in uh, June and July of uh, 1918. Later in October, we have uh, the date of when uh, the Cherokee first started being used in the 30th Division uh, near Cantini. And then uh, a little bit later in October, we have we know that Choctaw and Cherokee were used at Force Force Firm, uh, starting on I believe it's October twenty sixth and seventh. I believe is when they start using those. Now there are some other groups, but we simply don't have anything that records the date of when they started. So that timeline could you know. If a new document is found, that timeline could be rearranged uh, at any time. But we have dates for at least three groups so far. But you'll notice all of these are late in the war. These are really in the last few months of the war. So you've covered this a little bit already, but could you just kind of go over again what tribes are having men serve as code talkers and in what divisions? You mentioned the third, but what are the other divisions that are using code talkers? First, we we have one reference to some use 
<clears throat> in the first division, the big red one. We have um, some Ho-Chunk that are used in the third, the third infantry division. We have Cherokee from, these are Eastern Band Cherokee. These are North Carolina. Uh, They're being used in the 30th, the 30th division. Uh, we have the Choctaw and some Cherokee being used in the 36th uh, division. And then uh, we know of uh, a group of Comanche who were used in the 90th uh, division. Now, there are also references to some Sioux that are being used, but that's a that's a fairly vague term. There are actually many, many tribes that would be primarily kind of north central plains that fall into the Sioux group and three different dialectical families. Unfortunately, these articles never specify which subdivision of Sioux or uh, what particular reservation they're from. So there's some claims, but there's really nothing that specifically says that. But we do know that they were used. There's three or four different press releases and reports, all from the the period and everything. Uh, There are also some references to some Osage being used uh, from Oklahoma and everything. But again, uh, the closest we can find is, um, uh, I think, uh, in the 36th Division, but we don't have specific names or anything. It's quite likely, my suspicion is that there's others quite likely, because, for example, <clears throat> with Suyan speakers, you have all these reservations from North and South Dakota, some in Montana, uh, even down in Nebraska, et cetera, uh, that are in a, quite a number of divisions and everything. But the, the thing that, um, that really stands out is, okay, this was an impromptu. This is kind of like somebody puts a math problem up on the board and just says, figure this out. And so you're doing it in the field. And so it's being done to solve an immediate problem. It's not being done like a research project or uh, something that has a formal procedure and planning and documents. So a lot of this was simply done off the cuff to solve the problem during combat and everything, and then move on. And so that's part of why there's so little documentation is the war was still going on. And um, a lot of times, you know, you can be, well, for example, I know cases where you could be a cook, but if they need you to become a rifleman, you'll become a rifleman on the spot, or you'll become a radio transmitter, whatever is needed to, to be done, you can be pulled and implemented in there. And so this is something, again, that the men themselves, they were just asked to do it, they did it, and they moved on. And so you you don't see much in the, you don't see the Native men themselves seeking recognition for it or really doing anything with it. It's just something that they had they got asked to do in service and did it, you know which was, it's unique. There's no question about it. It's very, very unique. And so uh, it's impromptu. Now, later in World War II, we will actually have groups that plan and prepare codes and things of that nature. Can you give us some examples of the success of the code talkers during the war? At Contini, um, this would have been the 119th and 120th Infantry Regiments in the 30th Infantry Division, they had really just kind of stumbled against a a stalemate there for a little bit. And anything that they tried to do, uh, the Germans just um, adjusted and countered it and everything. And so this is one of those situations where they realize then that they are listening in. And uh, they round up a number of Cherokee. Now, 
again, you have to realize these are these are probably mostly privates and maybe a few corporals that they're pulling together to do these things. So there's no effort to record this. This is just we have a problem. We're going to solve it, you know. But as soon as they start implementing those Cherokees, their advance picks up. Uh, they're having less less resistance, less trouble, et cetera. So there's a clear sign there that their communications are not being broken anymore. At Forest Firm, which is one of the really well-documented cases, Forest Firm was a, a, was a small peninsula um, along the Ain River. The Germans had retreated across the river except for this salient or this peninsula that stuck out. It had high elevation on it. So from that high elevation, you could control the plane approaching it. You could also counter across the river on both sides of you. And so until that position could be took, taken, the Americans couldn't advance across that section too too defensible. So the French tried twice uh, to assault this position and were repelled with heavy losses both times and everything. The 36th Division was brought in and assigned to take this. And this is where the idea comes in. The officer that uh, picked the men and got them together uh, wrote some of this down in his in his letters and things. He got a call from the the um, um, signal battalion, and with their crest, find me find me eight of our uh, Indian soldiers who speak the same language, speak it very fluently, but also very fluent in English, because you got to you know got to be able to understand both and everything. So he picked eight. Um, most of them all had had been to uh, Indian boarding school in Choctaw country. So they were fine English speakers and they spoke their language fluently. And so they uh, divided them out and sent their messages. So they started sending messages in Choctaw and actually started preparing this the day before they had scouts kind of, if you will, intrude or sneak up towards the front lines, but stay secreted and everything individual scouts they had uh, messages in, in Choctaw going on back here in their main lines, and they got everybody positioned. They sent out the messages, et cetera. They were going to have an artillery bombardment the next day, and um, then they would have they would go over the top and they would rush and they would run right behind the artillery, uh, which is a little dangerous. You have to have your timing just perfect. The artillery barrage would force the Germans to go underground and stay in their Uh, dugouts and their entrenchments in order to survive. And then as soon as the artillery stopped, the the American troops would be right on top of them. And so they sent all this out in Choctaw. It was timed. It went off without a hitch. And they completely uh, caught the Germans unaware. They killed somewhere close to 300, captured a couple hundred of the the, uh, German pocket there. The Americans only lost 14 soldiers. And so this was a clear proof that uh, they, they, they're sure they could hear it, but they, again, had no idea what the language was, what they were saying, or anything of that nature. So, yes, we have some instances where um, it definitely worked. Uh, there's an instance from the Comanche in the 90th Division in a situation in which uh, an element of the 90th is surrounded by Germans and cut off, and um, Comanches within that group um, send messages to other Comanches outside of that group and draw relief enough to to uh, change the course of that and and uh, rescue them basically. So yes, we have a few examples of concrete where it's clear they couldn't 
<clears throat> understand these messages. And if I could for a minute, maybe go into why the messages, what made them successful. And sure. so there's a few things here. One, they're an unknown language. And so by unknown, I mean unknown to the Europeans. Um, even in America, in most of these communities, you have a few non-Indians that can speak these languages, oftentimes people that married into the group or a local trader. But these are languages that are not known to the world in a scholarly fashion or things of that nature. Secondly, they're not Indo-European. And so anything that you know, anything of French, uh, Spanish, Italian, thing like that, Germans would would know these languages and could break them eventually because they understood the languages. Code breaking is all about isolating consonants and vowels and, and frequencies and patterns, you know, and everything. And then there wasn't much printed material on these. Now, Choctaw and Cherokee did have written syllabaries by this time. They did have written languages, but it was mostly for Bibles and hymnals and kind of local local church materials that would be consumed locally and not something you would find in the you know in the German National Library or something of that nature. And then the other thing is that they didn't have time to, to they didn't have time to study and break these. This was happening so fast and the uh, end of the war was coming, you know, that there was no time to to really counter these. So those are some of the things that really made them accurate. And then Right at the end of the war, the Choctaws, when they, they tried their language, it was successful. After that battle, they were relieved for a few days. And immediately there was an assignment, those eight men that used it, there was an assignment, 18 men and three non-commissioned officers would be pulled together and they would practice sending messages for a week. They were getting ready to use it again when they headed towards Metz. And the officer in charge of them was a lieutenant who's actually a Cheyenne. Uh, they don't list who the 18 men were and the three officers, but they practiced for a week and they actually created code words for things that were difficult to say. Some American military concepts were not really present in the Choctaw language. So they created actual code words, had them written down, had them memorized, etc. They finished their training on November 10th of 1918. So we all know what happens the next day. The armistice is signed. So they're the first case we know of, of actually creating code words uh, standardized words made up to use for messages, but the war ended before they got back in and used them again. One of the reasons that we know about the World War I code talkers is there are a lot of newspaper articles about what they did during the war. You have newspapers openly sharing how these code talkers fooled the Germans. Why was this not kept secret? Good question. I think, I think again, several factors. One, this was so informally and, and impromptu of an activity that it was just to solve the problem at, at hand and everything. Uh, the war ended very, very quickly after these started. So everyone's focus, I think, immediately was about, you know, being thankful for surviving it, getting back home. A lot of these guys didn't get to go home until uh, the middle of 1919. They didn't, they didn't hit American soil, some of them, until June in, in 1919. The other thing is that, if you recall, this was the war to end all wars. So I think the average person didn't anticipate there would be another one. And, and uh, of course, it takes, you know, reflection and time to, to work all these out. But I think a lot of people didn't think that, well, we'll need this again. It was just a, some of the officers and people describe it as 
they, they say, what a slick trick. Look what we pulled on the Germans, et cetera. So it was seen as something that worked and, and people were just moving on. But there was no, yeah, there was no uh, effort to secrete these. And that's, that's another one of the big popular uh, myths is that the minute you say code, everybody automatically means, well, it has to be kept secret. You can't talk about it. You can't share it, et cetera. But Colonel Bloor, for example, was asked by the Army. Lieutenant John Eddy started this project late in the war, uh, right at the end of the war, to record the experiences of American Indians and to do a lot of interviews with them and things. And he also wrote to their officers in units and asked them about the Indians' performance and all kinds of different uh, topics, you know, stress under, under uh, you know, conflict, things, how they get along with other soldiers, what's their ability of scouting, riflemen, et cetera. And Colonel Bloor wrote up the most detailed letter describing how this come about, how he used them, et cetera. And it was actually published in, in uh, Flagny in France in February of 1919. So they hadn't even left yet. And it was published in the French newspaper. And then just a few days later, it was ran in several newspapers in, in America and everything. And then when the men start coming home, there's, uh, again, articles. But if you look closely at the articles, it's almost all from their officers. It's not from the code talkers themselves. It's from their captains, their colonels, their uh majors, different people, even a two-star general, I think the 36th, um, gave a speech in Texas where he's very clearly explaining what they did, how they used them. And again, it, it just wasn't really um, looked at as something in hindsight, yes, of course, we shouldn't, you know, shouldn't have talked about it, but it was all over the place. The articles name the units, uh, they tell what division, they tell what tribe, etc. So there was a fair amount of information put out there and everything. But yeah, it was very widely broadcast. And I don't know how extensively in France, but I do know that that one initial report. So that it's likely that there were other accounts in uh, European papers that I'm unaware of. And the interesting thing is, though, that even though that information was out there, it doesn't appear that the Japanese came across that and thought about that in World War II, or did they? Well, there's rumors. That's that's a great logical question. There are rumors that the Japanese and Germans set sent anthropologists over here in the 20s and early 30s to learn American Indian languages. Um, I don't know how much of that is actually true. I, I hear rumors, but I, I never see anything really substantial documentary citation you know, type source and everything of that. They were uh, widely identified and everything. It doesn't seem to have hurt us because the exact same languages were used again in World War II with, with no, uh, no problem whatsoever. And the other thing too is that the, again, this wasn't like Latin you could study anywhere or Spanish you could get materials. So even if you identified these, uh, getting access to these communities and learning them was a lot more difficult. Some of these communities are just a few thousand people, right? Uh, like like Comanches at this time, probably two thousand people, maybe or, or so. So again, the number of speakers and the accessibility was very difficult for some of these languages. So, do you think that the success of the World War One code talkers leads directly to the program that's put in place in World War Two? Absolutely, it is. 
I describe it as it's the template for it. It's basically the template. There are references in some of the articles that come out in 1940, 1941, and, and where they're announcing in the newspapers, again, no effort to keep these secret whatsoever. Um, they're, they're talking, they're describing these articles about, okay, we've just recruited members of this tribe in this division of the army, and they're forming a code in their language to use against the Germans when we get in the war, et cetera, and everything, you know. And so there's no question about it. And some of the articles actually refer to, you know, we all remember how Indian languages were used in World War I to fool the Germans. Well, we're going to use it again, you know. And so, yeah, there's no question about it. The Army was still aware of it um, and everything of the records. The only way we really know about the Cherokees in the 30th Division is that um, – a captain from that um, unit stayed in the military, was a career military, and in the early 30s, he was taking advanced officer, uh, some type of advanced officer uh, training uh, at Fort Benning in Georgia. And in his course, they are required to take some incident that they were involved in World War I that presented a problem or a challenge and describe how they solved it. That's their course paper. So he writes down how they pooled all these Cherokees together. And he was right there in the unit. He was, you know, uh, the one that came up with the idea. And so, you know, it's clear that, that um, people know about this, even though it's not really in the doctrine, in the military training and doctrine, people still remember it and everything. And so, yeah, there's no question that it uh, directly led to it. And we start having <clears throat> about um, at least five groups that we know of that were mostly recruited and trained before going into service. And they were given the assignment of coming up with coded vocabulary. Best two examples we have, of course, is the, the Navajo. We have the entire uh, vocabulary. Uh, the Comanches, we were, when I interviewed them, they were still able to remember around a hundred of the terms that they used. And um, they had about 250 originally that they designed. We also know the Sac and Fox or Meskwaki uh, from Iowa. They had some code terms. There's a group from uh, that I worked with, they had code terms as well. But these were all formally recruited specifically to become code talkers. And then you have other units in World War II that were just de facto put together. But yeah, the idea is not forgotten at all. So, and it's 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 really paramount to it was expanded upon, and it could have it could have actually been expanded on much further than it was. Um, but that that didn't manifest in World War II. So. Any final thoughts about the legacy of the World War I code talkers? One of the first things is, is the uniqueness of it. And, and I say that kind of in two ways. One, it's unique, this idea of using native languages, you know, to send messages that can't. The other aspect of that, though, is that these men, both World War I and II, were products of the Indian boarding school era. And so they went through schools where they were prohibited from speaking their language, discouraged in every way about maintaining tribal culture and things of that nature. And so for them, one, to be resilient enough to hang on to these 
in that type of you know situations and everything, and then two to be uh, gracious enough to share them with everybody. I think that's just absolutely amazing. You know, out of a government system that has tried to completely eradicate them, and now they find them you know valuable. But the the military the military was not didn't have the same objectives and everything necessarily as the Bureau of Indian Affairs and and the missionaries, you know. So that's a really uh, unique aspect of it. The other, I think, is the value of languages. You know, America for a long time has not stressed. I remember when I went to high school, you couldn't even take a second language until high school. But uh, we realize now the more languages somebody knows what a skill, what a valuable asset is, Thank you, Dr. Meadows, for joining us today and talking to us about the World War I Code Talkers. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And I hope uh, for those that get a chance to see the the, uh, book that they will enjoy it and find uh, find it worthwhile. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.